Welcome to the Who'd Have Thought That About Drought podcast series. I'm Dr Rebecca Pierce, and I'm glad you can join me to hear some of the interesting and unusual things that happen during droughts. The sort of things that make you stop and say, well, who'd have thought that? For the past four years, I've been travelling around the UK talking to people who have specific memories of droughts. For anyone who doubts the accuracy of a person's memory in this regard, particularly from a drought that happened perhaps 20, 40 or even nearly 60 years ago, fear not. For these people, the retrieval of their memories is easy because they recall something else that happened at the same time that had a great impact on their lives. For some, these impacts are positive, like the birth of a child or a marriage, for example. Sometimes it can be something more personally testing that brings the memory back. In the first of this series, we heard from Brian and Glyn, who both fought wildfires in the Welsh mountains in 1976. It was the added impact of wearing heavy uniforms, the extreme heat wave and resulting dehydration that helped them to strengthen their memories of these fires over the countless others they have attended. There's often an assumption made that oral history testimony is not terribly reliable. However, I've been able to find evidence that supports these memories in local newspaper reports. By doing this, the Historic Drought Project may have cleared up a number of methodological issues for future researchers. I have every confidence in saying that it really is fine to use memory retrieval practices to gather information. Memory does not diminish exponentially over time. Important memories stick and can be recalled at any time. So the key is to find people who can say they remember something because it coincides with something else that had a lasting impact on their lives. Jane's testimony of the 1976 drought is an excellent example of this. Though she was only nine years old in 1976, the cliff fire that threatened to engulf her family's holiday chalet at Whitsand Bay in Cornwall was very memorable indeed. Jane contacted me after reading an advertisement I placed in a local newsletter appealing for oral history donors to come forward with their memories of 1976. Jane's memory is really worth listening to, but here I'm going to play a short clip of her talking about the thing that helps her to remember the drought. Yeah, that's why it stuck in my memory. That's why when I saw the article, I, it just took me back to the yeah. smell of the smoke and, mm. and the excitement, but the f- being frightened at the same time yeah. because yeah. it was pretty full-on fire. Because I, mean, I would have thought you were quite brave to stay overnight. With... Yeah, <laughs> it, it's really weird because I did a um, firefighting course when I was in the reserves, naval reserves, all 20 odd years later mm. and they put you in a situation where you've got all the gear on and you're safe and I suddenly, I was there again, mm, mm. waking up, looking out the window, seeing the fireman hose in the garden down. It was the mm. smell and, yeah. and, and everything and the noise. Yeah. So, um, so it does stick. It sticks, that, yeah. And even now, if I smell, you know, if you go somewhere like, well, now you get gorse fires on mm. the moor or the new forest yeah. or somewhere like that, that smell just takes me back to being mm. sort of nine years old again. The fire Jane remembers is well reported in the 16th of August edition of the Western Morning News. You can find the full reference for this in the historic drought inventory. 
The paper tells how an all-night watch was kept by firemen at Whitsand Bay as fire raged along the cliffs dotted with chalets and tinder-dry gorse. It mentions that several vehicles on the cliff top were destroyed and describes how firemen, chalet owners and holidaymakers worked hard, forming a human chain passing buckets of seawater as tenders were soon emptied, while local people supplied cups of tea. All this detail triangulates Jane's testimony perfectly. There was something else that Jane talked about that I didn't expect. She had a very detailed knowledge of the wildlife on the cliffs and what managed to escape the fire and what didn't. And then she said, um, I can remember finding a completely baked slow worm that I carried around for years until it disintegrated. That was one of my a treasure sort of souvenirs. Yeah, a treasure. Yeah. <laughs> I never expected that. Anyway, in this podcast, we're going to remain in 1976 and with the Western Morning News and Western Evening Herald. Undoubtedly, the 1976 drought is still the drought that had the greatest social impact around the UK. After two years of below average rainfall, the long hot summer that most people of a certain age remember so well threatened the nation's health and the economic health of the nation. Devon and Cornwall were badly affected areas, reliant in the main on surface water supplies and only having a small number of reservoirs. The influx of summer tourists who left the cities in droves to escape the intense heat wave were not so keen to cut their water use despite the ongoing water saving campaign. What I find interesting about local news reports from that time is the matter-of-fact style of reporting. Coverage of the developing crisis represented the plight of the different sectors of society that were struggling to cope, and their opinions. There were detailed descriptions of the problems dairy farmers encountered, as the main impact initially was on grass, grazing and the hay crop. The rising price of staple foods such as potatoes were monitored. Details of villages and towns that were due to be rationed by standpipe were also covered, with every street and village named with its cut-off date. There were appeals for volunteers to come forward to help the elderly and less able collect their water, and of course some criticism of the Water Authority. However, in the main, things were broadly positive, in that most reports championed triumph over adversity. Novel water-saving ideas, canny gardeners winning prizes at flower shows, despite having to minimise watering, and water-saving ways to wash were all given column inches, creating a backdrop to the drought that was definitely one of the community doing its best to save every drop. From buying 18 pence bars of sea soap and heading off to the coast for a bath, to the Navy ordering ships in port to operate as if at sea, where fresh water would presumably be routinely in short supply. What really brought the drought into sharp focus was the rather hastily appointed drought minister, Dennis Howell, who had plenty to say on the subject, which was of course widely reported by the local press. He demanded water savings of between 30 and 50% and was happy to share his opinions on which towns and cities were meeting his demands and which were lagging behind and letting the country down. At one point, he said certain parts of the West Country had done too little too late, and he meant it. He also made it clear that workers would not be put on short hours and the tourism industry would not be made to suffer. 
householders were to shoulder the bulk of the restrictions, eking out the water they collected from standpipes across all the usual household functions, washing, cooking, drinking and toilet flushing. This is reported in the Western Morning News on August the 25th. It says, The people of the West Country are told by the newly appointed Drought Minister Dennis Howell that the water-saving target has been set to safeguard industry and save jobs. Households will be last in the queue for water after agriculture and industry. Now listen to how Jan and Paul coped when the supply to their village was cut off. What was it like in 1976? I can't remember the actual um, month that we got cut off completely and had standpipes, but I'd got Becky as a little 18-month-old and I was either very pregnant or I just had Emily and the standpipe was about 150 yards from our house. And the only way to get water back from it was to persuade Becky at 18 months old to walk, not go in the pushchair, because I had to have the five-gallon container Mm. in the pushchair and stagger along the road (laughs) (laughs) to fill the blessed thing up and then heave it into the pushchair and then push that back with with Becky beside me. Um, So it was all around the time, I think, that I... I think I was pregnant, yeah. I think we had one one set of, because of Terry's toweling nappies to wash. Becky's nappies, yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah so and then the, prob- the problem then was that, um, um, was when I came back, this five-gallon container then had to cover all the, all the water things. But one of the, the water problems was that we had this ancient sort of Mark II converted Rayburn cooker, which had been a solid fuel one, but had been converted to oil. But it wasn't a turn-on, turn-off oil thing, it's just a pool of oil burning. So you had to keep it, that kept burning all the time. And it had a header tank in the roof, which had to keep topped up because of these sort of evaporation things, because it becomes dangerous otherwise for the hot water cylinder. So then this water had to be taken up at least every couple of days up into the roof to top up this tank so some of that water had to be transported into another container and then up a ladder through a little hatch and, and what have you. And then it had to cover everything. And with little children, of course, the, the, diff, the main problem was the nappies because mm. they weren't disposable in those yeah. days. So Jan had a wonderful system of, of, of using the water in stages. Oh, yes. So apart from... Reusing water about yeah. five times. So apart from <laughs> drinking it, which we didn't, use it for anything else the stuff that we were were drinking you see what i mean about memory jan was expecting and that makes the whole thing much more memorable when i started working on the historic drought project i didn't really think about people's heating systems and how they would be affected by water rationing but this is the type of problem that was reported widely by september the 9th there appeared to be no end in sight and the Water Authority took out a half-page advertisement in the paper prescribing what all households should try to achieve. It says, water, cut it by half now. Don't have a bath, have a shower or a wash. Flush the toilet only when it's absolutely essential. Keep wash days to an absolute minimum. 
Wash by hand if possible and use the waste water for flushing toilets. Don't use a dishwasher or waste disposal unit. Don't put sanitary towels, disposable nappies, etc. down toilets. Low flows in sewers will cause blockages. Don't leave taps running for washing, rinsing vegetables, cleaning teeth, washing off sand and dirt. Turn your stopcock by 90% to reduce the flow. Don't leave taps dripping or overflows running. Use wastewater wherever possible. See how you can save 20 gallons a day. Here's where the water goes. An average bath, 20 gallons. Toilet flush, 2 gallons. Automatic washing machine, 25 to 50 gallons a load. Twin tub washing machine, 15 to 20 gallons a load. Dishwasher, 10 to 12 gallons a load. Waste disposal unit, 1.5 gallons a minute. Running tap, 40 gallons an hour. Let's hear from Jan and Paul again. Did they follow the advice? Um, well, I can't remember the sequence. It went from no. drinking to cooking. Washing. So if yes, you had washing if you cook, vegetables. If you washing vegetables, but then if you cooked the vegetables, you poured the water when you drained them. You didn't throw it out. You it went no. to doing something, flushing the loo or something. Yes, flushing the loo water was pretty awful by awful. the time it got to that point. Um, Everything else went eventually to the last stage, which was sloshing nappies mm. to do the the worst bit of it. And then they had to have clean water to wash them. So some had to be kept aside for that. Isn't that right? I think some so, clean yes. water I think to they used do to do the them in the bath, actually, the nappies. Yeah, but you had to, we, they had to be soaked first, didn't they, and get the worst yes. off. Yeah. And that was the last stage before this water that had done washing up. Washing up. Washing the up, washing up. up. The cooking water, <laughs> went, that went to the slushing off nappies bit. And yeah, then that awesome. went out into the garden. Mm, right. But then some water had to be kept to wash nappies and to wash ourselves. Mm, yeah. Baths were out of the it question. It seems as though the people may have been quite annoyed that the water authority could not provide the level they were used to. But they understood that they should all pull together and do their bit. And I don't know about you, but it sounds like Jan and Paul had quite a tough time. I'm not sure how many of us would be that keen on having to manage with collecting five gallons of water at a time. That's around 22 litres and about 15% of the average daily usage per person today. In the next podcast, we'll be hearing from some of the people on the front line trying to manage the customer expectations in drought. But for now, you can find... 89 items from the Western Morning News and Western Evening Herald from 1976 covering the water crisis and the drought inventories.